Welcome to Blackbird episode number 39. My name is James, and today I'm excited to bring you a chat that I had with my friend James Riley. James Riley is kind of an old hand in the Ron Paul movement from back in 2007 and 8 when Ron Paul was first running for president. We got to know each other, of course, on Facebook in kind of libertarian circles, the Tom Woods Facebook group, principled libertarian, that sort of thing. And given that we live, you know, a couple of states away, our paths have crossed in person a few times. And what that led to is a pretty good phone relationship. We hadn't talked in about a year. The last time we spoke on the phone was right after the murder of George Floyd when all of you know the cities were burning last year. James lives close to Kenosha, Wisconsin, where they were, of course, having riots in the streets. And here in Minneapolis, which is you know ground zero, George Floyd was killed you know, just a couple of miles away from me. I was also obviously very impacted by those events. And so we talked last year about defunding the police and sort of the crossover between some left-wing movements and the libertarian movement. Unfortunately, this was before I had started a podcast, so it wasn't recorded. It would have been great if it had been. We talked for a good hour and a half on the phone. I wanted to kind of recreate that vibe. I wanted to pick his brain, not so much on current events, but you know his thought on philosophy, on where he's at as far as like his political ideology, if it even exists anymore, he's kind of dropped off Facebook and the communities where we had hung out. Our conversations are mostly via DM now, but I know that he has a lot of interesting viewpoints. I had recently referred to him in a Mises Caucus group as the closest thing to a real libertarian philosopher that we have here. So, you know, I just wanted to pick his brain. I wanted to see where he's at on property, on the liberty movement itself, and, you know, just whatever else came up. So I think that's what this is. It's a pretty good conversation. If you're into this sort of thing, I think you're going to like it. And even if you're not, give it a chance. Before we get into it, let me tell you real quick about Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. Liberty Classroom is, of course, Tom Woods' Dashboard University. You've heard about it on his show. I think we probably mentioned it when he was on my show. If you're interested in learning history, economics, even logic and fiction, Brad Berzer's course on the history of sci-fi, for instance, and how it relates to liberty is one of the most fascinating things I've ever, I've ever attended. Head to blackbirdpodcast.com slash classroom to sign up. So once again, if that sounds good to you, give it a try at blackbirdpodcast.com slash classroom. And with that, here is my chat with James Riley. All right, James Riley. So you're not like a celebritarian, but uh, we have been in the same circles for years. And so I, I wanted to have you on just to just to kind of talk, I guess. Like we we have pretty good conversations. I didn't come at it with any sort of like predefined questions or really a whole lot of topics or anything like that. I just think you have interesting things to say. And recently we were in the, <laughs> you kind of made a cameo in the Mises Caucus group on Facebook. And I referred to you as the closest thing that we have to a real libertarian theorist in this group. So, and I know that that was kind of flattering and stuff like that, but really I, I feel like that's the case. So I don't necessarily want to get too much into libertarianism. Really, I just kind of like to pick your brain on you know, the culture and politics, if you want to get into it and all that stuff. But first, 
so that I can stop rambling, why don't you kind of give a quick bio of yourself? Sure. So I live in Wisconsin right now. I was born in New York City. I joined the Navy when I was 19 years old, basically to take care of my wife and two children and one on the way. And that was at 19 years old. I married when I was 19 and she had two kids and we were pregnant. And so I joined the Navy. And then I moved around for a little while in the Navy. This is right around the first Ron Paul campaign. So I started becoming very interested in politics and libertarianism by that time. And then, yeah, so I've been a student of libertarianism basically ever since. I was always interested in political philosophy and natural law and anarchism, a sort of a naturally derived form of anarchism that comes from natural law based on how I understood enlightenment philosophy. Mm -hmm. I was always interested in that ever since I was a kid. And I hadn't realized that there was a whole world of political theory that had already been explored dealing with those exact things until Ron Paul. And even actually, I wasn't convinced that what Ron Paul had to offer was viable at the time for all the same reasons that anybody wasn't, right? Like, so the mainstream media had convinced me that it just wasn't reasonable. He wasn't reasonable. He wasn't a reasonable person. Even though what he was saying resonated so deeply, but it was so radical and so counter to the mainstream that I would just chalk it up to like, yeah, you know, he makes so much sense and there's a lot of value to what he's proposing, but it just wouldn't work in the 21st century, you know? And so I kind of let that election go by. And then by the 2012 election and watching him the second time around, I started to really just begin to appreciate how important he was as a political force in the US. And that's when I really took my deep dive into libertarianism. So I ended up getting out of the Navy. I got my degree in economics. I studied at the college that Yuri Maltsev teaches at. Became close friends with him. And I've done a lot of stuff with the Mises Institute over the years, You know, various Mises universities and Rothbard graduate seminars and things like that, just to sort of enhance my understanding of Austrian economics. And so I'm very, very interested in Austrian economics, probably more interested in Austrian economics than I am with the particular brand of libertarianism that's associated with Austrian economics. Sure. But yeah, that's, that's basically who I am. At this point, all I do is teach fencing and play music and watch my kids grow up. So you kind of have interesting views on property, though. Like you talked about natural law. And when we think of natural law and private property, we think of Locke and Homestead and the... Robinson Crusoe illustrations that all the economists like to give. Don't you have like a different conception from that? Yeah. So I was concerned with some of the ideas around property, listening to people like Walter Block, who honestly, in my view, does the best to try and reconcile issues that I feel are irreconcilable. But basically, when it comes to homesteading, how can we homestead various resources? So we say we homestead land property, but I found that problematic because land is an abstraction, by which I mean land is just sort of a border drawn around an area, but then there's, you know, there's going up into the air and then there's going down. And I wasn't sure where the line was with regards to how much elevation you could claim and how far into the ground you can claim 
And so that was the beginning of my issues with the idea of homesteading property. I ended up going deeper and deeper down that rabbit hole. And I just decided that what I was getting from the standard fare with regards to natural law wasn't sufficient. But then I was introduced to David Friedman's idea of a positive description of rights and a positive sense of what property is. And the way is that, that he defined... Sorry, is that positive as opposed to negative or positive as opposed to normative? Positive as opposed to normative. Okay. So just how does property work in the real world? Yeah, okay. And what I basically decided was that I agreed that property is essentially just a social contract. Mm-hmm. Now, when you open that can of worms, you have to begin to unpack what it means to have a social contract because as libertarians, you know, we're supposed to deny that, right? And so now my whole sense of what a rights regime is, is sort of framed in terms of this social contract, how it is that social contracts form in the real world. Again, so I'm talking mm-hmm. about like a, a positive description of how it is that organizations of human beings decide what the rights in a given society are. And so the question becomes less about whether or not there's a natural order, which involves a particular set of rights, and otherwise there's an artificial order, right, which is sort of manifested in the form of a social contract. The question becomes less of that and more a question of how the necessarily contrived order is either evolves or is derived, right? So in my view, any order, any set of rules or laws, any rights regime in a given society is necessarily contrived. And my question is, is there a more optimal way to devise those set of rules that we govern ourselves by than sort of the authoritarian imposition of such a set of rules by a state? So when you take that perspective, then property is just like any other way that we interact or rule that we mm-hmm. rule that we govern ourselves by, and which is to say that we just kind of as a society decide that's what we're going to honor. And so I personally view property as being, I don't want to say essential because society could operate without property, but I, I think that, you know, for the world that I want to live in, I like the institution of property. I want to live in a society where I'm able to acquire resources and quote-unquote hoard them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I, I'm okay with challenging sort of the moral conception of or the moral association of hoarding resources with being negative or whatever. I'm okay. I want to live in that society. I'm okay with that society. But I don't believe that it's fundamental to human nature. Yeah. Do you think that there are things that are fundamental to human nature? You know, at this point, No. (laughs) Yeah, I think that what happens is we sort of develop our relationships in weird and interesting ways. You know, I mean, if you just think about the types of relationships that you have with various people in your life, right? There are various distributions of power between you and your friends, Mm. right? And sort of that's another thing too that we, we, we might as well kind of talk about is that when we say rights, we're talking about these formal institutions, right, that govern all of society. But really, rights are just a distribution of power. Rights are what allows certain behavior or 
rights make certain behavior acceptable in such a way that people don't respond to it, sort of, it, it doesn't cause conflict, right? Yeah. But so in a sense, even within our personal relationships, there's a set of rights. So like, for instance, I have friends that I can ask to do me a favor mm-hmm. and they wouldn't feel imposed on and they'd be exceedingly willing to go out of their way to do me such a favor, right? There are other friends of mine, for whatever reason, that if I asked them the same favor, that would be an imposition. That would be inappropriate. That might even put a strain on our friendship, mm-hmm. right? So in a sense, there's a set of sort of community rights within my own friend circle. And those rights change depending on who I'm interacting with. And so there's a distribution of power in that friend circle, right? Because when I ask someone to do a favor, if I know they're willing to do it for me, I'm exercising some degree of power over them, right? Now, I can see people hearing this and saying like, wow, this this is too far afield for me. Like, I I don't understand the connection or I'm not sure that this makes sense or it's Mm -hmm. perfectly analogous. And it's not, I'm not arguing that it's perfectly analogous, but what I am saying is that human beings organize themselves in weird and interesting ways and they don't always do it according to these formal rules. Right. And I think that any sort of superordinate system of rules for our communities are going to reflect the natural way that we organize our relationships in our closest circle. Yeah. Right. So does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, it's been a while since I was in college, but this actually was kind of my major area of study was how organizations are structured and the sort of power dynamics that are there. I mean, there's, there's like six or seven different types of authority and the president of the company has what's called legitimate authority over his subordinates. But what you're describing is something like an informal form of power or authority. And I would say that that's even more influential than what the president of a company or the president of the United States or whatever has over, over people. Yeah. So like, I, I guess what I would say is that if you get to a point in your intellectual journey where you stop conceiving of power purely in terms of the state. Yeah. Or even of voluntary and involuntary. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. When you start to conceive of power as something that is particular to a set of relationships and there are, you know, there are various social, economic, and political forces that are influencing the way that that power is manifest and exercised, right? Then it makes the world a little bit more interesting to me than the common dichotomy, at least in libertarian, you know, mm. in the libertarian circles that I'm most familiar with or that have been most involved in, which is sort of state versus voluntary, right? Or state versus non-state. Yeah. I think, well, and I think now it's expanding with sort of the rise of the techno gulag and and libertarianism right now is in a state where, you know, you've got the the reason people who are convinced that Google is a private company that can do whatever they want. And then you've got the, I guess there are more people in the Mises sphere, although I would say that the Mises Institute itself is probably still working it out. But people like me, for instance, I, 
I do not consider Google and Facebook private companies that can do whatever they want. I think that they're subsidiaries and arms of the state. So well, sure. So I so I wanna I wanna work that out a little bit for a yeah. second because so I I would agree with you that Google and Facebook exercise power that is essentially illegitimate, mm. right? I think that you know what we like to do as as libertarians of a certain bent is we like to say okay they're agents or arms of the state, right? Yeah. Even though even though formally they're not, right? I didn't even anticipate saying the word state there, which is just, yeah. it illustrates your point. Like, <laughs> right. right, 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 exactly. The, the, the fact is they're not, right? So the yeah. fact is they, they're corporations with huge amounts of power, mm-hmm. right? Which is what the left has been complaining about for, Forever. you know, decades. Or That's what the left is. You know, <laughs> right. Well, uh, you know, the left is sort of nebulous sure. uh, in the 21st century, but we'll say the progressive movement up until the new left, right? We'll say that corporations were the main boogeyman mm-hmm. of the left or the progressives for sure, right? And the late 20th and 21st century liberals, right? The corporations were the boogeyman. And in this case, they're right. And also, in this case, we take umbrage with the way that Facebook and Google unjustly exercises its power. I actually challenge, you know, all right, so I'm not going to go into details, but I will say that I've used this as an example and caused people to think, people who would normally have an answer, caused them to stop talking for a second and think about what I said. Mm -hmm. To challenge the typical view of what the role of corporations, the state, the private economy, et cetera, is. So Facebook, for instance. Facebook is a great example of an institution. So I've become more of an institutionalist. Institutionalism is a... uh, This will get me in trouble because it's hugely unpopular with Austrian economists. Uh, Institutionalism is a school of economics that developed kind of out of the German historical school. And it focuses more on the way that rights regimes develop. And so, like, they have an interesting perspective that falls more in line with my perspective that we'll say a rights regime in a society that includes all of the formal institutions of power, but also the informal institutions of power. Mm-hmm. We're just going to call those institutions, right? So, like, Facebook is an institution in our society that exercises an incredible amount of power. Now, they do it through the state, but it's also not clear to me that. They wouldn't exercise the kind of power that so many right Mises anarchist types are so offended by, right? It's not clear to me that they wouldn't be able to do that or they wouldn't be doing that mm-hmm. if it wasn't for the state, right? We just like to kind of, you know, the state is the reason that companies act in ways we don't like. Facebook acts in ways we don't like. Therefore, the state is the reason that Facebook acts the way we don't like. So. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm like all over the place with my thoughts right now. But I think that this example is exactly the correct example because there are a lot of Mises types that are going hard at Facebook and Google. And some of them are starting to see like, okay, this undermines my worldview. And so I need to sort of synthesize where my, you know, and I've gotten around all of that. (laughs) I I took a shortcut around all of that by saying that 
it's okay if I live in a society where I don't like the particular rights regime. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with the state or corporations per se, but it just has to do with the exercise of power. Now, now one thing I will say is that I'm more of a conservative when it comes to the way that society's transformed, by which I mean, like, I don't want a revolution in my lifetime. Okay. I have kids. <laughs> yeah. I have kids. I have a pretty cushy lifestyle. I have a job that I like. I get to do basically what I want to do. Contrast that with parts of the world that have experienced revolution recently. Right. Really, I can't think of many geographical regions that had experienced revolution that fared well shortly after. Mm hmm. You know, maybe in the long term, or maybe things had become so destitute under the current regime that revolution was a was a godsend. But that being said, you know, I wouldn't regard the United States as being that. Yeah, generally speaking, revolutions—well, maybe not generally, but often revolutions don't result in the, I guess, regime. Even though we've been using that word differently in this talk that would be preferable to libertarians or anarchists or whatever. I mean, yeah, the American Revolution resulted in the Articles of Confederation in a pretty decentralized society. But uh, yeah, it, well, it, only, it, so, only took, it only took a couple of decades, or was it a couple of years? I don't even remember right. for that to fall apart into what we have now, you know? Right. So, yeah, so there's a couple of things. Let alone the Russian Revolution. Right, right, right. Yeah, well, we, we could start going down a list, right? <laughs> But yeah, the uh, so just about your comment with the United States, that wasn't, I wouldn't regard that as a revolution or that was a fairly conservative revolution. All right. Right. Which is to say that they maintained all of the formal political institutions Mm. that they had already been governing themselves by, you know, in the United States after the nominal control over the territory was decided. Mm. So the states still operated as states the legislatures, you know, there there were formal political institutions that had basically operated as though nothing had changed, right? So that that would be an interesting thought with regards to that. I'd also say, with regards to the use of the term regime, I think you're absolutely right, and it's the perfect term, right? Because the way I, the way that I'm using the term regime is sort of an expression or an embodiment of of all of the institutions of power in a given society, yeah. right? Including formal political ones, economic ones, and social ones, right? And there are lots of social institutions of power, and we can talk about those. And there are lots of economic institutions of power and distributions of power. For instance, right now, Facebook has a lot of power, Mm. and it's not state power. It's economic power and social power, in a sense. But when we say like a regime, the regime comes from the way that power is subsequently distributed in terms of a revolution, right? So we say, like, what are the rules? What are the new rules of our society? And I think that's what you're getting at, is that after a revolution, it's not as though you can always expect the rules to be made in such a way that it serves the interest of all of the people that were agitating for the revolution. Mm. The other thing, the probably the most important thing for me when it comes to revolution is just, it gets to a question of philosophy, right? What caused the revolution? And that's a very difficult question to answer. When we say, what caused the revolution? Well, there was agitation from, from whom? 
from people who were being abused by the current distribution of power, okay, by people who were agitating for a particular rights regime to replace the current regime with. Mm-hmm. There are lots of different camps, right? So there are the leftists. I'm just talking about today in the United States. Right, yeah. And then there are the people who are looking to seize power, right? The people who see an opportunity to seize power. And those are probably the people who are most advantaged in the current rights regime, right? Like that's the thing about rights regimes that I think that we ought to pay attention to is that in any given distribution of power, there are people who benefit from the status quo. And then there are those who, and, and, and benefit from the status quo. That's kind of like, often that's everybody, right? That's what stability means. Stability in a society means that everybody is generally benefited from the status quo. Mm. Right. So it's only when enough people in a society decide that the rights regime, not the particular circumstances of their lives or livelihoods or anything, but that the regime itself is not serving them, that's when you get revolution. Right. So, for instance, I like using this example with regards to property too, so that we can tie that in. Mm -hmm. So, when we think about Detroit, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, you had car manufacturers in Detroit and you had a lot of workers that worked for the car manufacturers and they had livelihoods. And if you asked anyone what the value of their life was, if they were to put a monetary value on their life, they would think about what their livelihood was worth. They would think about the dollar figure that you would associate purely with their residence in a booming industrial city. And so in a sense, they felt that they homesteaded that livelihood. Now, we can argue about whether or not natural law, globalization, and whether or not it was a good thing for all of humanity or all of society to make the supply chains globalized. But when they went out of work in Detroit, Mm -hmm. they lost their livelihood, right? So that was money stolen directly out of their pockets because they had a claim on that livelihood. You could say, well, it was just an abstraction or you can't claim future revenue streams. Yeah, but they don't, they don't care. Yeah, exactly. They don't, about that. I mean, that's, that's not relevant to them at all. All they know is that they had an, a reasonable expectation of those future revenue streams, whether it be their retirement or just the existence of the factory 10, 15, 20 years down the line, or you know, a place for their kids to find work, like whatever it is. And when you have globalization and concentrated losses and dispersed benefits and et cetera, et cetera, what you end up with is a lot of angry people in Detroit. Mm-hmm. Now you, you expand the analogy on a national level and now you have revolution, right? Like it doesn't matter whether or not there was justice within the given rights regime. What matters is the expectation that people have who live under a given rights regime and whether or not they feel like that regime is serving them. And so that's sort of where I come back to this sort of positive sense of what power is and what rights are. When people are not acting or they're not behaving according to what natural law is. And so why are we concerned with what a theoretical conception of natural law is? Mm -hmm. Right? What we ought to be concerned with is what's the most optimal. And before we answer that question, we have to think about what our goals are. 
And for me, as I already kind of made a case, my optimal goals are often intertwined with stability. I want to live in a society that I can reliably predict you know, what kind of environment my kids are going to grow up in mm-hmm. or whether or not I'm going to be able to go train. And like, you can do that in various ways economically that are pretty closely aligned with the standard fare that you get in man economy and state, although I have some differences. But that's sort of how I think we can make our society better. But I, I don't I don't buy the angle that it's sort of the morally correct place to start. Mm-hmm. Because I, I just don't have any evidence. I mean, I say there's no evidence. There are arguments that have been made that I, I find lacking. So yeah, so that's sort of that's sort of my angle there when when it comes to property. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about movements for a little bit. The Detroit example is pretty good. The auto workers, when they were auto workers, were unionized and they were, broadly speaking, part of the left-wing labor movement. Nowadays, when you think of people who are disgruntled, you know, largely now former workers, they're more aligned with like right-wing populist movements. Why do you think there's a shift from left to right and... Then we can talk about a little bit the ascendance of the new left movement, which is more about identity rather than labor. Right, right. So we say the new. You can say the new, new, new left, right? So like, but yeah. So I think I think that's interesting. I I think that the progressive era was a way that the working class coalesced around an identity, right? Uh, I think maybe the the distinction was more stark in in the early American period with regards to capitalists and industrialists, mm-hmm. by which I mean like economic mobility wasn't there was some degree of economic economic mobility historically, right? So in the in the progressive era, but you know when it came when it so in the twenty first century. Who are our richest people in the world, right? And they're invariably people who made their money on ideas that were conceived of. I'm, I'm saying the bulk of their money on ideas that were conceived of within the last 20, 30 years, right? So say Facebook, Bezos with Amazon. Before that, it was Bill Gates. I'm not saying these people weren't advantaged, right? But the but the Era of the Rockefellers and the the you know Ford and uh, like the the era of sort of the, the the wealthy industrialist versus the working class man who could never have a reasonable expectation of of climbing to those heights. Mm-hmm. Right, things have changed so much in the digital era. I think that that has something to do with how the working class or the middle class forms its identity. Yeah. Right. So in the progressive era, there was a lot of talk about a labor movement. That's the way that the left conceived of themselves as being part of this labor movement. Just to kind of dumb it down a little bit, a working class person can't buy a factory, but a working class person can build a website pretty damn easily. Right. Right. In the 21st century, a working class person 
can have access to all of the resources they need to be exceedingly successful. Yeah. You know, and t- just in terms of access to ma- create content for a YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so okay, we have. Well, and, and to throw a bone to our lefty friends, they have access to all of the, all of those resources, save maybe for luck, which, you know, if you ask any successful entrepreneur, they'll tell you, uh, maybe not any, I think Richard Branson doesn't, doesn't buy into the luck thing or somebody, but, uh, I would agree with with them that luck does play a part in success. Sure. Well, so uh, I I do like I do like the the Austrian take on on entrepreneurship, right? Or mm-hmm. and, and specifically when I say Austrian take, I mean the because there's two there's two sides of the Austrian yeah. debate on entre- entrepreneurship, and I'm a huge fan of the Rothbardian and Man Economy and State sense of entrepreneurship, which is that that's part of that the, the you know part of the process of entrepreneurship is the anticipation of future you know of future preferences and so what goes into that can be a lot of things right but you know one of the things that goes into that is insight and astuteness and you know like or just or or hard work or whatever like there are mm-hmm. lots of there are lots of ways that that you can exercise entrepreneur, your entrepreneurial spirit beyond just the luck of having guessed future preferences right. There is an inherent, because we're anticipating what's happening in the future and things change, the future isn't set. Or at least we have no knowledge. We cannot, it's you know tautologically impossible for us to have knowledge of the way that the future will play out that there is always going to be an inherent risk in the way that we sort of exercise our entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. But you can be better at it and worse at it. There is an art to entrepreneurship that I, that I think is kind of beyond luck. But I do agree that you can guess right in spite of yourself, right? So to say that, that luck doesn't play a role would, would, also, be, would also be sort of not nuanced enough. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does. And the big debate between Austrian economists on on entrepreneurship to me is a little too uh esoteric as far as I'm concerned. Um Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I I I understand. I definitely understand why why you would feel that way because it, <laughs> I I've spent I've spent a lot of time with it. And I forget that when I first was introduced to this, you know, the fact that there was this debate, I had a little bit of trouble seeing the difference. So, I mean, one one thing that I would suggest to anybody is, uh, aside from reading all of the papers, because there's been two (laughs) dozen papers, there's been two dozen papers published in the back and forth, but also just like Man, Economy, and State has the best exposition of Austrian, uh, so the, the Misesian sort of line, or I mean, I, you couldn't even say the Misesian, the, the Rothbardian line. So we, we, I guess we can kind of draw a distinction between the two schools, Rothbardian and Kersnerian, right? I think that's it, yeah. You, you have just assigned my listeners a 900-page economic <laughs> tome and two dozen academic papers. So mm-hmm. there you go. Friends, that's what we're going to be doing for the next for the next decade uh, is reading that. Right. Let's talk about what 
don't labor question. movements and political <laughs> yeah. movements. Yeah, exactly. And the yeah. Okay, yeah. So I think I think really the question we ought to be asking is how are sort of social movements organized or how do they how do movements identify today? So I think in the progressive era, it was really easy to identify as being a member of the labor movement. But I think that for a variety of reasons, you know, there's, there was a shared culture among the labor movement in, in, the, in the early industrialized society, right? So we're talking in the eight, 17, we'll say, or excuse me, um, we'll say 1800s, right? So 19th century through most of the 20th century, we'll, we'll call like the industrialized period. And there was a there was a shared culture among workers, right? Which is to say, and especially in the assembly line era, right? But even be even before that, right? There was a shared culture among workers, and that's gone today. So the working class and the slash middle class don't have they don't have a shared culture. Part of that is part of that comes from the fact that we can create our own communities, that we can be very selective in terms of the communities that we build, right? So, and also because we have a substantial amount of, uh, you know, well, so we have a lot of resources available to us to dedicate ourselves to various communities in more profound ways. So. I would say all over the United States or all over the world, really. And it's become sort of more international, the way that we develop our communities. We have these little subgroups of people who are interested in various things and dedicating themselves to various things. So one example of this would be libertarianism, right? Or not even libertarianism, but we'll say like Misesian, Ron Paul-inspired, Mises Institute, ANCAP, voluntarist community. And we have our events and we go meet each other and we find ourselves in various cities and we post a little thing in a Facebook group and say, hey, I'm here. I'm in Austin or I'm in Minneapolis. Who wants to go get a drink or who wants to go get ramen? And so that's the way that we identify today. And I think, I think that's substantially different from the way that a working class movement identified in the progressive era. So, but then the question is like, so with regards to political movements, right? So communities of people who identify most strongly as people who want to see political change, right? Or to take a, maybe a a deeper take, people who want to see distributions of power change, Mm -hmm. right? And there are a lot of ways where it's perfectly reasonable for people to kind of see themselves as members of those groups in the 21st century because of social media and because of access to content and because of the fruits of it. I think it's it might even be particular to the way that we're able to promote our ideas and the things that the ideas that have the highest degree of potential to cause a stir, right? Because that's one way of acquiring power. Like, if you want to talk about a change in rights regime, mm-hmm. man, there has never been a more radical a redistribution of power than YouTube, right? And specifically, oh. YouTube in a in a post smartphone era, right? 
that was a radical redistribution of power. Yeah. Because all of a sudden, anyone with a smartphone could post content to YouTube and not only enhance their economic power, but I would argue enhance their social power in a way that you couldn't even monetize. And if you did monetize, it would be worth a lot more than maybe you'd expect, right? When you're talking about the way that influencers on social media, and particularly YouTube, are promoting ideas, are able to gain followership. And I mean, that's so important for me to show how power cannot... A, distributions of power are inextricably associated with particular technological modes. Mm-hmm. So before YouTube, look at the music industry. Music industry is a great example of this, right? So before the advent of the of the record player, we can say wax the wax cylinder era. We'll we'll say after after the wax wax cylinder era, but before the record player, musicians had a particular set of rights to power, we'll say, or rights to economic resources, mm. which is to say that they had a reasonable expectation of being hired for whatever gig, right? Right. They probably wouldn't make too much money, certainly not the money that rock stars made. Mm. When you get to the advent of record labels and music producing companies, now all of a sudden the capitalists have the most power. And then the capitalists choose who the elite musicians are. And the elite musicians, first of all, all of this is a network of synergistic nodes, right? So it's not to say that Rolling, the Rolling Stones or the Beatles didn't have any hand in them becoming famous and becoming like rock stars. Sure. But the fact is, the capitalists chose them for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And so they became the elite, but there was still a sense in which they were beholden to the record companies. Eventually, that starts to change just a little bit. but not as radically as when you have Napster, right? Once you have Napster, now all of a sudden, power has been stripped from the hands of the rock stars and of the record labels. But even more importantly, once you get YouTube and Spotify and all these various digital streaming platforms for amateur people who were amateur musicians, now all of a sudden, you have a more democratized workplace in in the music industry. Mm -hmm. And so rock stars are becoming a thing of the past. We don't have rock stars today in the same way that we did throughout, we'll say, from the 60s throughout the 90s. And all of that had nothing to do with the way that the laws were written. Nothing to do with political power whatsoever. You had radical redistributions of power numerous times throughout a course of 70 years that had zero to do with the way the laws were written. Zero, Zero to do with political power. And so there's a way that power is inextricably tied to technological development and the particular mode of technology in a given period, in a given time period. Then also, the way that we form communities is also peculiar to that technological mode, the way that we form communities around things. And so now we're forming communities around ideas that gain traction, and ideas that gain traction are tied to the platforms on which they're promoted. In the music industry specifically, it's almost kind of come full circle. I mean, in the age of Spotify, they're not making money off of their recorded music. They're making money off of selling tickets to their gigs. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is exactly how they started. And in addition to that, though, social media has created a tremendous 
opportunity for musicians to create communities around themselves. Like, like you were saying, you know, I was at a concert two nights ago. It, it, it's this, this duo basically who, because of COVID weren't able to play the clubs. So they've just been touring the United States playing in random people's backyards. You know, I'm sure they gave them a, a cut of the ticket sales and the tickets were cheap because they weren't, right. they weren't paying the venue and they were just traveling around in their, in their van with a, you know, their instruments, a couple of amps and, and that's it. Right, right, right. And it was one of the best shows I've ever seen, too. Like, I mean, <laughs> I'd hate to say that COVID was was good for the world, but uh, <laughs> you know, it, it was it was so much better than being in a noisy club. I, there was no bar, so there's that. But you know, I mean, yeah, no, I I, I think that's um, I think that's super interesting. I'm I'm really fascinated by it. COVID. Is a great example of of like the way that these these historical peculiarities mm-hmm. shape the way that, that shape the economic landscape and you know, necessarily shape the distribution of power, right? So it's not just it's not just the structure of the economy. I want to move away from this idea of everything has to be defined in terms of the structure of the economy, mm-hmm. right? There's a way in which social relationships change too, right? So for instance, it's a lot easier today to be able to reach out to the band, for instance, that you like so much, whereas it would have been a ridiculous expectation for you to be able to email Axel Rose. Yeah. And or, be like, or hey. Dave Matthews when I was in high school. Like, or Dave Matthews or yeah. whatever, right? And be like, <laughs> but now, hey, but I now, love your music. But now they'll come to your house. Yeah, Dave Matthews literally was doing live streams where he was taking direct requests from YouTube chat, like all throughout the pandemic. Right, right. Yeah, so I, I think I think that's that's a good example of how social power has changed, just purely based on technology, but also based on like, Historical circumstance, right? The COVID pandemic changes the way that we think about the way that we're going to interact with other people. But th- that being said, you know, we are concerned with, we are, con- so, so the main way, the main way that we think about power is through its formal institutions, right? So political power, so mm-hmm. i.e. the state, right? And it's not to say that that's all power, but that's certainly the sort of foundation but I, I don't I don't want to call it the foundation either. It's that's not that's not right. What it is is I, I mentioned it earlier. It's a network of synergistic nodes. You have various spheres within a society that interact with each other and play off each other. So the state operates according to the needs of the corporations, but also they govern you know nominally govern the corporation. Yeah. But then they're you know. The, there, there, there's the rest of the political culture that compels the state to act in ways that the corporations wouldn't want, right? And then there's the way that the corporations act with regards to the people who use their services or, you know, I, social media has been our sort of exemplar of this. So we say services. What you're describing sounds a lot like integral theory. I don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Ken Wilber and kind of his followers, but his foundational thing in his book is the notion of holons, which are, so a holon is an autonomous thing that makes up other autonomous things. So like a quark is a, is a holon that makes up an atom, which is, or, or the, the, the subatomic particles and the proton is a holon made up of quarks or whatever that makes up the nucleus of the atom. And the nucleus is a holon that makes up, you know, with the electrons, the atom itself. And atoms are holons that make up you know, particles and, and, and so on and so forth until you get 
the universe. Mm-hmm. All of these nodes are subnodes of bigger institutions, and those things are subnodes of other of societies and that and that sort of thing. But you're right; they they work together, and they're synergistic in the sense that without them, you wouldn't have a society, and with them, you have something that's greater than just you know institution A plus institution B equals institution. A plus B, like it's, it's more than that. Yeah. So it's actually that, that leads to a really interesting philosophical uh, discussion again, with regards to why we choose the way that we choose to define, to draw, you know, draw lines around what we're calling institutions mm-hmm. or what, you know, what we're calling institution A or B. So for instance, like as a fan and a, a devotee in some ways of the, of the Austrian school and the Rothbardian tradition, uh, we tend to, or I tend to, defer to methodological individualism mm-hmm. as a basis for how I understand economic theory. There's not, a, there's not a, a really great argument from an epistemological level why I should choose methodological individualism over, over various other ways of, of viewing economic phenomena. Mm-hmm. So like, why look at it in terms of the individual, I could, why why not look at it in terms of class or society or you know and define them various ways? So one argument that I've heard is that we we want things to be more universal, right? Or like that general is better than particular, or like all these various epistemic values that we sort of rely on to sort of inform our method. Mm-hmm. But there's a reason that we stop at the individual. We could try and understand economic phenomena at the atomic level, if we. I mean, if we wanted to get even more general, <laughs> right? But we don't. We say no. Economics is a question of of the way individuals act or humans act, and I think the reason that we choose that is because it's it seems to be the most relevant way, the 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 most functionally relevant way to to devise our method. That will answer the question, you know. But it's still, mm-hmm. a, it's still essentially a choice, and 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 like we have to start there. We have to start with some assumption. Yeah. Well, and and to get there, you have to start from the assumption of free will, and the assumption that humans acting on their free will is sort of the the base economic like reality. Right. Right. Which you know, which I don't, unless you've been living under a rock, you know that that's been problematic for a little while, right? Yeah. Like, um, so, and, and that's not to say that that's not to say like I've chosen. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm the first one to say that I've chosen uh, methodological individualism as the correct or at least the optimal way for me, yeah, to frame economic theory because it's it's what I believe will yield me the. Um, you know, the, the correct set of truths. And largely that's because you're a heterosexual white man with a couple of kids, uh, a business living in sort of a suburban slash rural area. I mean, it, it, it could be, I don't know. If, I don't know <laughs> if that's true or not, but I'm not going to not. I'm not going to say that that's unequivocally false. Right. Like I, yeah. Um, well, that's, you, you I mean, know. I, we're, we're, God, we're going to run out of time, but, uh, and I've got, I'm actually, I'm interviewing right after we hang up, I'm getting on with a, a guy named LB Muniz, who you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, he's kind of new on the scene, but 
he's real big into methodological individualism. It's pretty much all he ever writes about. And I think part of the reason that libertarians and libertarianism hasn't, and, and this is actually kind of since COVID actually has kind of sparked it, but prior to COVID especially, we were not influential in the culture because we just didn't have skin in the game. Labor movements, I mean, that was people's lives. That was their day-to-day thing was going to work and feeling abused or feeling satisfied with their with their jobs. For libertarians, we're we're mostly white dudes. When a white dude gets shot by a cop, it's a shocking thing. But when a black dude gets shot by a cop in the inner city, the fact that it's not shocking is what's shocking, if that sure. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really astute insight. And uh, listen, everyone who is paying attention to culture in the last five years knows about understanding power in terms of, of your various racial group or your various identity group, whether or not it be sort of gender or sexuality or mm-hmm. race or whatever, right? So everyone knows that that's what people are talking about right now. But I think that I think that you're framing it in a way that's pretty compelling, right? Which is to say that we don't have a lot of skin in the game. There's a way in which our lives, as, as upset we are with the current distribution of power, there's not a lot of reason to feel like we're being treated unfairly according to the rules of the game, mm-hmm. right? So when you have an identity group that feels like they're constantly being confronted with how the rules of the game are rigged against them. And I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of ways in which we all hate the rules of the game. All right. of us cis white men, you know, with families living in a suburban slash rural geography, right? Yeah. They're constant. We're constantly being bombarded with the fact that we hate the rules. Right. But how often are we being bombarded by the fact that the rules are, are stacked against us? That, they're, that, that different rules apply to us? That the rules of the game, that the current distribution of power, it would be worth seeing a revolution to overturn the apple cart and restructure the distribution of power because we're being so downtrodden. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think if a community feels that way, they're going to be compelled to act. And I think, and I think there was a there was a sense in which the labor movement, the progressive era, had reason to feel that way. Again, a positive reason. I'm not I'm not saying whether or not I agree or disagree, right? right? Or whether or not it was they were living a better life than they had been 50 years before that. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the way that people feel, mm-hmm. right? And so, in the 21st century, there are a lot of ways that people feel like the rules of the game are stacked against their communities. And I think there's lots of reasons for that, right? I, like, I would even go as far as saying that there are probably some just reasons for that, right? That they're justified in believing that the rules of the game are stacked against them. Mm-hmm. You grew up in a particular culture, let's say urban minority culture. You learn to talk a certain way. You learn to dress a certain way, right? You learn to communicate. You learn to think a certain way. Mm-hmm. Your ideas, not only the way that you communicate your ideas, but your ideas themselves are different. The priorities that you have in your life are different. It's really hard to integrate into a a society that's basically completely distinct from the one that you grew up in. If that society that you're trying to integrate into is the one where there's all the economic power available, then it it doesn't matter that you quote unquote have access to it. 
Well, and then add to that the fact that if you do integrate into that society, say you go to your good job and you code switch, then you're accused by the people in the society that you live in and grew up in of, quote, acting white. Yeah. And so then you're somewhat of an outcast in your society of birth, and you're also somewhat of an outcast in the society that you've adopted in order to give yourself, presumably, a better life. Right. And that's presuming, yeah, exactly. That's presuming you're able, you're even able to pull it off. Yeah. Right. And this is, and this is what people, this is what people mean when they talk about systemic racism. Right. It's not like you're being called the N word or, or encountering overt bigotry from day to day. That's, that's just, that to me is the biggest straw man in this, in this like cultural debate that we're kind of in the middle of. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and 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 I don't want to. I'm not going to call it a straw man because, and here's why: because I I do believe that most people are trying to be as reasonable as they can. Mm-hmm. I think it's a question of of perspectives, and I think it's a question of categories, right? I think that because we, we're constantly, in terms of our, our own personal philosophy and our own personal perceptual framework, mm-hmm. we're constantly ordering the world, and if if the categories in which we order the world preclude these sort of distinctions, then it's impossible for us to see them. And so the question has to be whether or not there's a value in ordering the world, ordering the, our societies, and, and just in terms of our, in our own personal philosophy, our own mm-hmm. perceptual framework, right? If there's a value in seeing these distinctions or not. I think that there's arguments on either side, we have to make choices. I mean, that is that is unfortunate. Like you asked at the very beginning of this, you said, is there anything that is essential to human you know, nature? This is one of those things, right? Mm-hmm. Is that we, are, we have to make, we're bound by our limitations as human beings. We have to make choices about how we're going to order the world. Yeah. And, they're, and they necessarily, the, the reason that we need to is because there's literally an unlimited amount of information flying at our face at any given moment, right? And we have to decide what the important information is and what the unimportant information is. Mm-hmm. And what the relevant information is versus the irrelevant, right? And I'm talking about the material world, right? right? I'm saying like, you know, I'm saying when you're walking in the woods, you see trees and you see bushes and you see animals, critters, you see leaves on the ground, right? Why don't you see all of the millions and billions and you know, infinite amounts of other information that's in the, in the forest, right? The reason is because all of that isn't relevant to you. You mm-hmm. see what you need to see to keep yourself, from, to keep yourself on the path, right? Or to, you know, to enjoy nature, whatever it is that you get, whatever, wherever the value comes from for you, right? But the same in society, right? So if we decide that we're only going to concern ourselves with you know, universal laws, uh, a universal sense of what the natural social order is, and that precludes distinctions of identity, cultural identity, then it's impossible to see the challenges that particular cultural identities face. And so I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a straw man per se. I think it's just the way that we order the world. And I think our job as people who have decided that there's some value in ordering the world this way that it's our job if we care enough to right to convince others that that value is there mm-hmm. and that they should do it that they should yeah. think about it this way 
they should frame the world in terms of cultural power and cultural identity. And now my argument isn't necessarily that it's just. My argument is that cultural identity is a way in which power is exercised in the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. And so to not understand it is naive. You know, and not, and and I don't and I don't just mean understand it in terms of like, okay, that's a force that I have to contend with, but to understand it in a deep way. What's driving it, whether or not there's a reason that people would behave in any particular way because of that as a social force. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In addition to that, for us, broadly speaking, libertarians or, you know, people who have quirky ideas, we're generally not the best salespeople. And so if we think we have the ideas that'll save the world, but the good salesmen are selling what we think are bad ideas, I mean, they're going to win. Like, that's, I think, the the part that we need. You've got like three major sub-movements within libertarianism right now. And you've kind of been off social, so maybe you're not quite as familiar with it. But uh, so like the Dave Smiths are really pushing the the Libertarian Party and specifically the Mises Caucus. And the Tho Bishop is really pushing um, Liberty Republicans. And then you've got like the Vin Armani and, God, I forgot his name. Uh, He's Jason Stapleton's co-host. They're really pushing this, just separate yourself from politics altogether and don't worry about convincing other people. Look out for yourself. And it's hugely contentious, and it doesn't really need to be, in my opinion. But these three people who are completely at odds with each other, these three groups, are all arguing really about how to sell our ideas. They're not arguing over the ideas themselves anymore, really. Right. I'm not sure where I was going with that, but <laughs> something you said <laughs> reminded me of it. Yeah, well, well. so, so what, we, what we were talking about is the way that identity, that cultural identities is strong forces, strong cultural forces in the U.S. are shaping mm-hmm. the, the sort of discussion and the trajectory right. of power distribution in our society. And what we're saying is, okay, we want power, we believe that power should be distributed a certain way. You know, and in my view, we being libertarians have a pretty naive view of of what power is, mm-hmm. because we we tend to do our best to only consider the difference between, uh, you know, state and uh, private, or you know, if you want to say non-state or whatever. Yeah, that's the area in which power is exercised that we're most primarily concerned with, and we want. Everyone in, you know, I think, I think it's probably true about anyone who has ideas about politics. We want things to go our way politically. And if we're concerned with that, that we should be doing the best job that we can. I think that actually gets to an interesting point, which is that maybe we're not as concerned with things going our way politically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like maybe, that's what I meant by the skin in the game thing. Yeah, yeah. Because like, I mean, I, I'm kind of over, I'm kind of over things going our way politically. Like I don't I don't really see it as viable. I would like state politics to be organized exactly the way that I want it to be. Mm-hmm. If someone gave if someone gave me that choice, I'd probably say, yeah, sure, I'll I'll I'll, I'll do it. Right? Take me 20 minutes, right? Write up <laughs> the the rules of society and and put them, post them on on the interwebs. But like I don't I don't see it as viable. I don't see it as an effective way for me to exercise the limited power that I have. Mm-hmm. 
right? Like that's the other thing that I've kind of come to terms with is that A, power is bigger than just what you can exercise politically. And B, I have a pretty limited set or a, a, I have pretty limited access to power mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to promoting my ideas or influencing people to believe a certain way. Like, like basically, I don't have any power to do that. Um, it's funny. It's so funny, man. To try and convince someone is, a, is an absurd thing. Like, <laughs> but, yeah, but just think about it for a second, right? So what do you, why do you believe what you believe? You believe what you believe because of you know, some three plus decades of, of life experience, mm-hmm. right? Everything from the type of applesauce you got when you were too young to be able to recall um, to the experiences that you had in high school to the books you read, to the podcasts that you haven't listened to, to who happened to run for president when you were coming of age. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to fit that into five minutes and explain to someone why they should have your ideas? We, we can't convince people to have our perspective. We, we share our perspective and then that perspective is another influence in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. My, my route to where I'm at now is so circuitous. And, and, there's lots of like waves too. Like, uh, so, I mean, I, you know, I, my formative years, I guess, were under the Clinton presidency where not, not much was happening dramatic anyway. I think now we know that there was a lot more going on then than, than we thought at the time. But then, I mean, I turned 18 in, was it 2001? Yeah. No, 2000. I turned 18 in 2000 and then 9-11 happened and then the Iraq war, war happened. And so, I was I knew I was opposed to those things to the war on terror and the war in Iraq. So where I naturally fell was like in these very left-wing circles and and but then, you know, I had a religious conversion experience and so I started being like a super traditionalist Catholic because, you know, I can't just do anything halfway. I, I can't I can't I can't I can't just go like fall in line with the bishop. No, 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 no. I, I you know, the bishop's a, a he's a he's a usurper to the to the bishopric, you know. But then from there I discovered Tom Woods because he's Catholic and he wrote a book about the history of Catholicism or something like that. Uh, Man, that was, is totally yeah, that's so funny because that you know, what you're describing right now is not the is not the common path to we'll say Tom Woods. Yeah. I know. I accidentally read a book review by a Catholic blogger basically that yeah. That introduced, but then that blogger also was into Ron Paul, not because he was libertarian, but because he was anti-war and pro-life. Yeah, and so, so then uh, you know I came out of the closet, and so how am I going to be a conservative Catholic who's also gay? That's weird. So then I became kind of woke, kind of libertarian. Like I remember in 2012, I uh, was a huge Ron Paul supporter, but really I kind of liked that Gary Johnson guy a little bit better because he wasn't quite as culturally conservative as Ron Paul, the old mm-hmm. country doctor. So like I I I remember I I remember uninstalling Firefox from my computer because the CEO of of Mozilla like gave money to to a conservative organization that was that was anti gay marriage or something like that. I don't even remember what the controversy was, but basically, you know, the CEO of Mozilla who makes Firefox um was a, a huge homophobe. So, you know, that was a that was a a thing in formation form forming my like worldview. And then you know, 2020 happened and I went full on agorist and just wanted to separate from politics completely. But then Dave Smith started inspiring me. And so now I'm like back in the LP and I'm even like on the, the state board for Minnesota's Libertarian Party, which, you know, may or may not have been a good decision. I'm enjoying it so far. All of these different experiences and influencers have shaped my worldview. I wasn't, 
I didn't come to where I'm at now because I read a book. Right. And I think that's what more libertarians need to understand is that we're not going to change people's minds by recommending books ever. They're, like it's yeah, not we're definitely <laughs> not going to change people's minds. Definitely not by recommending books, but also not by giving them a five minute spiel about right. how our logic is sound. Yeah. They like, don't care. They don't care. They're not, it's not even, <laughs> it doesn't even matter that it's right or wrong. We, we, they don't get that far. Like yeah. no one gets that far. Yeah. I don't get that. Like, you know, um, one of one of my favorite things to discover about someone is that they're a deep thinker, mm. right? Like, if if I hear you talk, even for honestly, even for a few sentences, often will be enough for me to say, okay, that person is pretty damn precise with what they're saying, and they're not leaving them. They're not leaving a lot of room for objections. You know, that's an example of someone who's thought very deeply about what they're saying, and. When you get to that point, right? When you get to when you when you start to look for that, or at least when I've when I started to look for that, when I started to see that, I realized that there are a lot of people with a lot of different views out there that meet that criteria, right? I, you know, and more. It's, a, it's actually funny. I was just thinking about this yesterday, or maybe two days ago. Um, I have a few friends that are that are centrists, right? Like, oh, sorry, I I retched a little bit, but uh, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Right. Except, you know, like s- some of these centrists have really compelled me to take a, a, a different view mm. on sort of wonky centrist types. Mm. Like I've allowed myself to find the value in their perspective, even the centrists, right? I've, I've started to appreciate the, the coherence in there. Because here's the thing, nothing is perfectly coherent. Like that'll be the topic for the next time we talk. Yeah. But not nothing is perfectly coherent in my view, and or complete, right? Like so, like you can have a pretty you can have a pretty coherent set of views, but and not be exhaustive, right? Mm-hmm. As soon as you try and make it exhaustive, as, as soon as you try and make it complete, <laughs> it, you know it falls apart, right? Yeah, everything That's, is the Fed's fault, right? Well, yeah, well, so like so, um, I, I liken it to an MC Escher sketch. Uh-huh. Right, you can take a little. You, you take any any given MC Escher sketch, and you can like take a section of it, and it looks right, mm. right. But the but the more you try and build it and build it and build it, the more you realize that there's no up or down left or like there's gra- You know, everything is going every which way. It doesn't make sense, right? So that's sort of my view of. But that being said, like you have to decide why you're framing the world the way that you are. Mm. while you're taking the perspective that you're taking. And really that has to come from, because nothing can be complete and coherent, that has to come from a sort of decision about what truths are important to you. Right. And when you do that, or when I did that, I've discovered that there's a way in which you can view the world where even notwithstanding all of the problems and difficulties of the way that we've organized our current society, that it's still mitigating the potential for catastrophe the best way possible. I don't agree with them, but it's it's not just sheeple who are just falling in line, doing what they're told, believing what they are told. Right? There are real smart people who have decided to view the world in such a way where a centrist perspective on politics has the greatest potential for good. Mm-hmm. You know, and and like 
I can be okay with that. I can be okay with the fact that A, I disagree, and B, there's value in that perspective. Yeah. Thanks for teaching me something anyway. Yeah. Cool. Well, uh, like I said, I have an interview, another one in about 10 minutes. So I'm going to go refresh my water glass. But before we do that, do you have anything to plug? You know, I don't. Um, yeah. I, I was, uh, like you said, I've kind of been off. I've been off social media. Yeah. Uh, I'm just, uh, you know, I'm glad to have the conversation. Yeah. Because- dude, we haven't, we were talking before we started recording. We haven't spoken like allowed to one another since George Floyd's murder. And um, I really, now that I've started a podcast, I mean, I, I started this after that. I wanted to have another one of our, one of our conversations because um, they're very enjoyable. They go a lot faster than, than I, like I, the fact that we've been talking for over an hour and a half uh, is shocking to me. I hope that the, I hope that the audience gets as much out of hearing the two of us dialogue and, and hearing your insights as I do from talking to you. Uh, Cause I'd love to do it again even if you don't have, you know, your own podcast or blog or whatever. I don't think you're even on Twitter, right? Yeah, uh, right. Yeah, cool. I, think so, I, have an, I have an account, but I, I, it's basically a ghost account at this point. Yeah, cool. honestly, man, I'd love to do it because one, one thing about me is that I like to build a thesis, right? So I, for a living, I teach, right? That's one of the things I do. Yeah. Basically, the biggest thing I do. And with my students, especially my one-on-one students, sometimes it'll take me It'll, you know, it'll take me a little while to build a thesis about, you know, what I'm trying to say or, or the way that I view the world or whatever it is to make it sort of make more sense. And so obviously you can't do that in an hour and a half. Uh, yeah. I'd love to, I'd love to, to come back and, and we can kind of continue this discussion and maybe, maybe get somewhere to where we have like a complete thesis. But it was, it was very enjoyable. Cool. Talking to you again, man. Yeah. And uh, I should be up actually. I'll be up in Minneapolis in September, October-ish. Oh, nice. Cool. Uh, I've got a busy September, October, so let's sync up our calendars if, if you're going to be flexible on that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, cool. It'll be good to see you again. Take care, James. It's good to see you. Yeah, see ya. All right, thanks again to James for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, hit reply on the email that you get from Substack and let me know. And if you hated it, let me know that too. And if you're not getting emails from Substack, if you just signed up for this podcast as an RSS feed in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, I highly encourage you to go to blackbird.substack.com, sign up with your email address. It's totally free. And that way you get email notifications whenever I publish a podcast episode or written content. Of course, the written content does not come through your podcast subscription. And if you really like the show, if you'd like to get early episodes, bonus content, and premium written content, then sign up for one of the paid tier options. And that way you'll get a little bit in return, but you'll also be helping me out tremendously. Also, don't forget to check out Tom Wood's Liberty Classroom at blackbirdpodcast.com slash classroom. And with that, this is another episode of Blackbird, and I will see you on the next one. Until then, live free. (laughs) 